Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. This fall, High Theory is participating in the Humanities Podcasting Symposium, organized by the Humanities Podcast Network. If you are a podcaster or avid listener, we invite you to contribute, too. We are looking for presentations on podcasting in the humanities in all shapes and forms, on audiences, teaching, learning, equity, accessibility, knowledge production, and everything else. The symposium will be held entirely virtually on October 15 and 16, 2021. Find details about the Humanities Podcast Network, as well as our full call for contributors for the symposium at humanitiespodnetwork.org. That's humanitiespodnetwork.org. Today we're talking about sexual difference with Emma Heaney. Emma, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure, and thanks so much for having me. I'm a teacher and a writer. I teach courses in queer and women's literature, literature of the Harlem Renaissance, and queer, trans, and feminist studies. And my areas of scholarly focus are mostly in trans studies and in 20th century literary studies. My first book is called The New Woman, Literary Modernism, Queer Theory, and the Transfeminine Allegory. And it's about the process through which the figure of the transfeminine was medicalized and the uptake of that figure in works of literature and philosophy in the 20th century. And I have a forthcoming project that I collaborated on with a bunch of different great collaborators, and it's an edited collection called Feminism Against Cisness, which will bear on some of the things I'm talking about today. That is fascinating, Emma. And thank you so much for coming. Let me ask you my first question. What the heck is sexual difference? Sexual difference is the social organization of the supposedly biologically derived terms of the sex binary into a hierarchy 
of persons and qualities. So the um, arrangement of people into masculine and male, uh, the category that's associated with being active, cerebral, spiritual, agential, over the feminine and the female. So the social category that's associated with passivity, emotion, the material world as opposed to the spiritual or transcendental world, and dependence. So sexual difference is this ideological partitioning of people into these two categories, which are arranged in a hierarchy. And sexual difference is also an ideological structure with a material basis. So the terms of this difference have been established over the past 500 years in relation to money and the value form. The category female and feminine is the social expression of the valuelessness of reproductive labor. So of cooking, of cleaning, of caring for children and elders, of gestation and lactation, of emotional care, of all of the sort of socially necessary activities that keep people, families, and communities alive and thriving, but that are not monetized and are therefore seen as valueless. So all of these activities are associated with wagelessness, even though increasingly in recent decades and in recent centuries, they have been waged, right? Caring work is sometimes waged. Cooking is sometimes waged, all of these things, but they're still seen as less valuable forms of labor. The analytic of sexual difference allows you to think of this valuelessness as adhering in a more ideated form. So the idea that the feminine, feminine qualities or people associated with the feminine are devalued materially sets up this ontological devaluation whose symbolic is sexual penetrability. So the idea that feminized people are available for degraded or degrading sexual penetration establishes this mutual reinforcing equation among penetrability, submission, and degradation. So this is the basic theoretical articulation of sexual difference. Lusa Rigre is sort of the most prominent of the thinkers who think about this in psychoanalytic terms, who think about sexual difference as the historical production of the subject itself, as the sense of the agential individual, as a masculinist construction that has emerged historically in counterdistinction to a feminine that is seen as what she calls internally different, as chaotic and uncontained and you know foreign to reason and not a proper subject as sort of pure difference. So Rigore talks about sexual difference in terms of the sort of constitution of the male subject through the particularization of the feminine as non-subject, as non-being. Right. And she traces this through the philosophical tradition from Plato through Freud, basically, well, through Lacan even. Then there's a sort of political theory of sexual difference. And the most prominent theorist of this element is Carol Pateman, who talks about the way in which not so much the sort of philosophical concept of the subject, but the political concept of the social contract and the citizen articulate themselves through patriarchal power as not this sort of alibi which they give themselves of the liberal citizen and the liberal political project as equality and the proliferation of rights bearing to all citizens, but rather as a structure of domination and subordination with the masculinist citizen being landowning 
colonial, white, etc., as being the subject of that story that liberal democracy tells about itself. And then there's another element of the theory that was developed by scholars, including Hortense Spillers and Lyndon Barrett, that talks about the way in which sexual difference, rather than just the partitioning of all people into male and female, is also a central ideological structure through which racialization occurs. So in this theorization, one of the operations of sexual difference is ungendering, which means this withholding of masculinist priority from racialized men and the infliction of certain kinds of treatment that are not inflicted upon women traditionally defined as white women, and that this inappropriate sexed treatment of people of color, of colonized people, is one of the methods through which racial difference is produced. So for instance, the scholar Talitha LaFloria has a book about Black women in the South and the convict leasing system. So this was a kind of punishment that was traditionally associated with men, but was also used on Black women. So the idea there is that this social violation of the rules of how women are supposedly treated when it comes to racialized women is a racializing tax. So those are the kind of ways that theorists have articulated the concept and explained it. How do we use sexual difference or or not? In these very familiar and often used touchstones, spillers, Pateman, Rigray, we can already see how these concepts help us to understand and describe the way social relations work broadly. Why, for instance, women's bodies are objectified, but women's health care is marginalized, right? Why female authority is dismissed or punished, and why behavior or qualities that are thought of as feminine are seen as incompatible with power. Traditionally, that's been a question of accounting for the condition of women and the role of men in reproducing patriarchal power, right? But a lot of scholars recently are producing work that is contributing to thinking about sexual difference in a more accurate and fulsome way than in terms of just men and women. And this is what my work is working on right now. My task, as I see it at the present, is to disarticulate sexual difference from cisness. Cisness is the biologizing ideology that these social roles produced by sexual difference naturally adhere to sex based on the appearance of genitals via prenatal imaging technologies before birth. And this is such a naturalized link that it's difficult to see the difference between these hierarchized social categories and their imposition on infants and fetuses. In other words, this is the idea that those identified as girls at birth are naturally inducted into the social expectation that sexual difference sets for the feminine and likewise for boys with the masculine. So these are both ideological constructs, right? Mm -hmm. Sexual difference and cisness. But whereas 
sexual difference has this material basis in the valuelessness of reproductive labor. Cisness has no material basis of its own, only the one it attains via its imbrication with sexual difference. And this sounds counterintuitive because the ideology is so connected to the idea of bodies, right, and of identifying qualities of bodies. So I wanted to just talk a little bit about why it's important to think about cisness having no material basis of its own and only attaining a material basis through the ideology of sexual difference. The ideology of cisness is predicated on the idea that it emerges from the physical structures of our bodies. This produces the impression that its real structure is in flesh and follicle and muscle and organ. But consider the following example. A vagina is a structure composed of skin and mucous membrane and muscle and other tissues. Its functions are real, important, and require attention. Further, the possessor's relation to this structure is so laden with ideology that the possessor of this structure might feel, even on the very affecting level of sensation and bodily self-awareness, that this structure actually grounds her sex identity. And in the negative, she might experience that structure as, for example, the source of her body's vulnerability to rape. But we know that bodies without vaginas are disproportionately communally susceptible to rape. Trans women, racialized people, gay men whose gender expression is interpreted as feminine, incarcerated people, enslaved people, children, sex workers, people experiencing homelessness, gender nonconforming and transmasculine people, right? These are all categories of people who sociological study demonstrates are disproportionately vulnerable to rape. And so we have to think about constructing an account of sexual difference, an account of the operation of feminizing violence that accounts for all of this disproportionate vulnerability and harm. And so that's what I'm working on now is crafting a iteration of sexual difference that accounts for the ways in which sexual difference both adheres in and exceeds the category woman, that this vulnerability has something to do with the identification of vulnerable groups as properly feminized, and that the sexual violence is, the, is one of the practices through which that ideological association is affirmed. So that's what I'm trying to help make happen in conversation with other scholars like Greta LaFleur, Jules Gill-Peterson, and Durba Mitra, thinking about a more capacious understanding of sex. What really strikes me is the, you know, the reparative aspect of what you are doing. On a very basic level, a kind of restitution of subjects undone by violence at even the a kind of semantic level, you know, words hide so much sin. I just really, uh, really appreciate you saying that. And and one of the reasons why I appreciate it so much is because there is a lot of ideological resistance to this kind of thought among a certain contingent of thinkers who feel that something is being sacrificed or disallowed. And the thing that's being sort of sacrificed or disallowed in their understanding is the category woman or discussions of misogyny and patriarchy. And so what I'm really trying to do with my thinking and standing on the shoulders of so many is to think about exactly as you say, that this is not depriving us of any tools for talking about misogyny and patriarchy. It's rather revealing in terms of the operation of these 
power structures historically and how they've had everything to do with cisness, everything to do with race, everything to do with coloniality. I think we have, through a somber journey, arrived at the largest possible ramifications of the work that you're doing. So I think this is a good time for me to ask you my last question, which is how will sexual difference or how will sexual difference as you are conceiving it along with your colleagues, how will it save the world? The thing that this kind of thinking gives us is a clarification of solidarities that have already been in operation, but have not perhaps formed thought as much as they should. In the late 90s, the scholar Kathy Cohen wrote an influential article called Punks, Bulldaggers, and Welfare Queens. It's an article that takes stock of the tenor of queer radicalisms in the early and mid-90s and notices the way in which the sort of articulation that had risen to the top in many queer political circles had made this firm distinction between heterosexuals and homosexuals, between breeders over there and between queers over here, right? And what Cohen does, as you know, is she says, when I look around the communities that I feel held by, where my queerness, for instance, attains its articulation and its life, there are all sorts of people who are denied the benefit of heterosexuality just as violently as any queer people, right? So women on welfare, poor and low-wage women, single mothers, all of these forms of, of queerness that are relevant and present in Black community. And she says, don't be afraid of this observation, disallowing this line that you want to draw as bright and clear. In fact, all this means is that the vast majority of people are excluded from the protections of heterosexuality. And that's a good thing. Those are the lines of solidarity that could be amplified and are in all sorts of ways, right? There are all sorts of ways in which gender nonconforming and queer people and other people who are excluded from heterosexuality have like practiced and articulated those lines in different political projects. But that's what I think this kind of thought can do. It can identify, clarify solidarities of the feminized, clarify solidarities among the many targets of patriarchal power, and also impugn in new ways, right? People who are called women, who this you know analysis allows you to see as contributing to, benefiting from, protected by masculinist priority. And that's also racialized and classed. So it creates new lines of solidarities, but also new clarities around the sort of ways in which whiteness and cisness work together. That was so fascinating and you know, brilliantly clarifying. Thank you so much, Emma, for talking to us. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonic Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonic Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.